what is up y'all my name is Kristen. my name is sarah and welcome to the red rum and red wine podcast I would say at this point, you can expect two episodes a week at some point throughout the week. <laughs> but as for what day it's going to be, you know, we're just going to let that be a surprise. Cause yeah, we're just rolling with the punches. Rolling through the punches, that is life. And I don't make it any easier because I have another rough one today. Yay. Yeah, quick trigger warning. This case does involve children. I promise I'll try and step away from these cases. I, I do need a break a little bit, but this is very much unlike one I would say that I have done before. And I would like to give a big shout out to Case File for having an amazing, very descriptive two-parter over this case. Um, they definitely don't need me tooting their own horn. They're doing just fine. They will never know who we are, but it was an amazing two-part series and I definitely recommend y'all checking it out if you are interested. Because for today, I am talking about the Uberlingen crash of 2002. Oh. And a warning, this is a out of the country case. So everything that I'm going to say will be mispronounced. <laughs> you know how it is. On July 1st of 2002, Basha Kyrian Airlines TU-154 passenger jet was making its way from Moscow, Russia over to Barcelona, Spain. This was a last-minute flight that was being called from Moscow to Barcelona. The plane was carrying 69 people in total, and this included 45 school children between the ages of 8 to 18 who were traveling on a school-funded trip. Hmm. The children were from the city of Eufa, Russia, and were sent to Spain with the group UNESCO, otherwise known as the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Hmm. So these were deemed amongst the brightest, the most artistic, the most athletic children within Eufa. Eufa. Hmm. Some of the children were from very prominent families. I do believe that one of the children was the son of the leader of UNESCO. But a lot of the other children were coming from lower to middle class families that really had to scrape by or work extremely hard to earn their spot on that plane. Arsen Moskatov was a brilliant and budding biologist who was said to be really excited to explore the different species around Spain. His parents had even borrowed $800 to send their son on the trip and canceled their own holiday in order to send him off, as did many parents in order to scrape money up, would cancel their own trips so they could send their children away on this flight to Spain. Okay, but imagine being a budding biologist, like, and this kid at is that like, age. He's like 15. Wow. My motivation was not there. Yeah, at 15, at I was... We not need people. At anything. We, we <laughs> teenage drinking. <laughs> we need children like that in the world. Ruslan Urizelin was also on the plane and had recently won the school's math prize. And his sister had worked hard to be a straight A student that year, so she could also earn her spot on the plane. Mm-hmm. And her parents were basically sending them off as a treat for all of the hard work that they had done for that semester. Aww. 
according to the articles I read at 23.30 or 11 p.m., if I'm not mistaken, the plane was crossing over the town of Umerlingen, and this is a city that is located within southern Germany. Now, while they're flying over the city, that is when the pilots decide to go ahead and check in with traffic control. Being just inside the German border, the airspace was actually controlled from Zurich, Switzerland, and this was done by a by a private Swiss air company that was called Skyguide. Now, Skyguide was responsible for monitoring all activity within that airspace that was said to be over the Lake Constance region. Nights for this air traffic control center were said to be fairly slow. There was actually a law set within place that put curfews on airports, so there were only so many flights that would be going on during the time. And because of that, there were only two stations that were set to be open and working that night of July 1st, 2002. The two stations were only feet apart from each other, and both were being overlooked by one man, a man named Peter Nielsen. Peter did have a colleague who was working with him, but he was actually on break at the time, taking a little snooze in the other room. Hmm. This, of course, is very much against Skyguide's policy, but it was very much something that was said to happen amongst workers, and it was something that management was well aware of. They just kind of let it happen anyways. Since the airport was also not as busy during the night, a lot of maintenance work was scheduled to be done at the time. And while this was going on, the phone system that air traffic control used to contact other air traffic control towers was actually down. Oh. And from what it was said, the backup line that was in the air traffic control tower was malfunctioning that night. So it just so happened to not be working. And so basically there was no way for Peter to contact any other air traffic control system. (laughs) This caused... I'm just just thinking like there aren't any other phones anywhere like your cell phone i guess not <laughs> if they're because you think i guess one backup would be good enough and the backup just so happens to not be working and this is 2002 so i mean it's not like you can whip out an iphone i guess and i like i don't know it, it's just there was no way for him to ring up the other tower and let them know what was going on and this caused quite a bit of a commotion when Peter was trying to handle a delayed Airbus flight 1135 that was trying to get into Friedrichshafen Airport. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely language, mm-hmm. the German language. Mm-hmm. So while Peter is trying to contact this Friedrichshafen Airport to tell them, hey, this Airbus is trying to land into your airport, he's having, a, he can't do it. Mm -hmm. He's realizing very quickly that he's having a hard time trying to communicate. And so this is said to take like a couple of minutes of his time, which in air traffic control is kind of a long time. It's crucial, yeah. Yes. It left him unable to answer certain calls from an aircraft that was going on in the area. It was said that a Boeing 757 cargo jet, Flight 611, which was carrying cargo from Italy to Belgium, was trying to get in contact with Peter. Peter had actually told the cargo jet to descend just 10 minutes earlier, but the pilot now had a question about traffic that was said to be in the area. 
By the time Peter had finished with Flight 1135 and made it back to his screen, he would notice the traffic that the pilot from Flight 611 had been asking about. The Boeing cargo aircraft and the Russian Tu-154 were set on a direct course for each other. In a frantic attempt, Peter would call a final command out to the Russian Tu-154 aircraft, then watched as the two dots on his screen disappeared. Up in the air, the two planes would crash. The Boeing's tail stabilizer would slice through the Russian's Tu-154 right above where the wings were located on the aircraft. (sighs) If you go on TikTok or on YouTube or, like, Google it, you can actually see simulations of what occurred that night. The Russian plane Flight 2937 split apart in midair. This would alter the cabin's pressure and knock everyone out within the plane as it began to disintegrate and fall across the night sky like a meteor. The Boeing cargo plane of Flight 611 lost control and plunged for three minutes until it crashed into the ground with such a force that the nose of the plane was said to be embedded three meters within the ground. Oh my god. The bodies of pilots 47-year-old Captain Paul Phillips and 34-year-old First Officers Brant Campoini were still inside of the aircraft, and it was assumed that they fought to try and take back control of that aircraft for the entirety of those three minutes. Mm. Remaining debris from the crash scattered along the German countryside. Police said that it was a miracle that no one on ground was seriously injured or killed by the falling debris that came from the crash. It, It was said that the engine and parts of the plane had narrowly missed a boarding school that held disabled children. Another woman spoke of how her dinner party near Owingen came to a sudden stop when the right wing of Flight 2937 landed in her back garden. The majority of the wreckage was said to fall over three major cities that was said to be about 20 kilometers long and two kilometers wide, according to case file. People would rush outside in horror as debris was said to fall like sparklers from the sky or like it looked like fireworks were falling down. And then people began to notice that the bodies of children (gasps) littered the streets, fields, and forests within the area. Oh my god. A later investigation said that 40 of the 69 passengers on flight 2937 were actually ejected from the plane before they hit the ground. (gasps) Everyone on both flights would perish, so the 69 from flight 2937 as well as the two pilots from flight 611 so there would be 71 total casualties from this event Uh, my body like my hair is standing straight up parents were shocked to hear the news of the crash because many of them believed that their children were already in spain what because it turns out that the children weren't even technically supposed to be on that flight. Oh, fuck. They were originally scheduled to leave on June 29th of 2002, but the bus driver that they had scheduled to bring them to the airport accidentally brought them to the wrong one. (gasps) And so instead of flying on the flight that was scheduled that day, the four to five chaperones that were scheduled to be with the children would take them around Moscow sightseeing until they had a flight become available. How and many it, airports are there in 
apparently a lot apparently a lot yeah i they didn't give a number but they said that there were quite a few within moscow (sighs) it said that a lot of them were extremely excited to go see the moscow area because ufa the city was not known to be a very well-off town it was described kind of like more like rural maybe lower class yeah. mm-hmm. so a lot of the children were just so Aww. excited and blown away to see moscow okay but the woman in this picture with her arm up fucking styling <laughs> like that shirt is so cute sorry oh that's i know with the sunglasses yeah it's a look Parents would be given immediate visas in order to go to Germany to try and identify their children, mm. and officials would tell them to bring whatever item they could in order to help with that process. The children's bodies would be brought back to Ufa and buried together, their headstones placed in rows resembling the seating arrangements that they had on Flight 2937. Oh. From here, the city of Ufa went into a state of mourning. All of the festivals that were scheduled were canceled. The business, any businesses within the city shut their doors down. And radio stations were said to only play sad classical music during their time of mourning. Hmm. They were very, very serious about this. Because apparently when one restaurant owner tried to put on a pop song in his restaurant during this time, the people would run him out of town. (gasps) Oh, fuck. Yeah. It would be described as the biggest casualty, uh, like citizen casualty through an air. I said that so bad. It was said to be. Yeah. It was said to be the biggest civilian aircraft casualty that happened within the area. I mean. Yeah. mm. I mean, it's tragic in every single way. You know, of course. So many lives were lost and the majority of them being children. It's just like, and the fact that they were deemed the brightest, the most, it was like their cream of the crop of Ufa. And yeah. Sky Guide at first would set blame on the Russian pilots for what happened. Oh. Apparently, Peter had given a command some two minutes before the crash, which... If it would have been given at two minutes, would have given the aircraft plenty of time to get out of the way and avoid a crash. But since the pilots didn't respond right away to Peter, that was what was said to have led to the crash. Hmm. It was insisted that it was a lack of the Russian pilots not listening to Peter's commands because the Russian pilots didn't understand the English commands. Even though English is said to be the language that is used globally for air traffic control. Yeah. And one of the pilot's wives even came forward later with a certificate proving that, like, her husband was highly trained and had passed a certain test that proved that he knew air traffic English commands. Like, he knew them extremely well. He knew how to follow them. And this, this wasn't a lack of him not understanding because it's something that is required to every pilot yeah if you want to fly and all of these pilots that were flying the plane had thousands of mile or thousands of hours under their belt and were deemed very high up within their ranks um they were said to be class one workers which is said to be like the highest honor that you can receive in russia as a pilot bashakirian airlines even went as far as saying that one of the pilots that was flying the plane had actually 
saved another plane from a crash a few months prior by making this last minute maneuver that saved hundreds of lives. So yeah. these were very highly trained people that were flying the aircraft. So it they were kind of shocked that that was the conclusion that they were coming toward or that they were coming to. There were also rumors that if it wasn't the pilots, it may have been the aircraft that they were flying. There had been multiple TU-154 aircrafts that had crashed. I believe one case said around like 300 casualties were in one of the airplane crashes. Hmm. And so this really brought up a huge question as, well, okay, this aircraft is clearly dangerous and we're allowing it to fly. This is some kind of maintenance or safety protocol that is not being handled properly. But when they looked into it, there was a technical inspection that was done just two days before the crash on the TU-154, and no defects were seen, and it was given the clear to fly. Now I know, especially with that carnival <laughs> story you just did, that doesn't mean that it's like totally A-okay, but from what it seemed, there was really nothing wrong with the plane, and this wasn't the reason why it crashed. And the same would go with the Boeing aircraft. The last inspection that was done with this was about two months before the crash, and there wasn't any, and there wasn't any kind of defect that was seen wrong with it. It wouldn't be until those little black boxes that they always talk about in airplanes that record everything the that's going data box. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until they found that big data box and were able to get all of the data off of it that officials, as well as the public, would really learn the truth of what happened the night of July 1st, 2002. Hmm. At around 11.20, Flight 611 would call into air traffic control over at Skyguide and would ask for permission to ascend. They were wanting the lighter air that was up above, so they would be met with less resistance when flying, and this would ultimately end up saving them some gas on their trip. With the Air Traffic Control Center now being in control of Skyguide, Flight 611 would receive the okay to do so by Peter Nelson, and they would set their cruising altitude at around 36,000 feet. A few minutes after this, the first officer, Campolini, would take a bathroom break, and he would go and leave the pit in control of the captain. It was at this time when the captain was flying by himself that the plane's traffic avoidance system, otherwise known as TCAS, came on and began emanating one word over and over again. Traffic. Now, for those who don't know, a traffic avoidance system, or TCAS, is this system that will detect other planes in the area, and using that will give you instructions on what you should do to avoid that plane that's within the area. So at first it let him know traffic, hey, there's something in the area, and then it would be followed later by the command descend, letting him know in order to not hit the oncoming traffic, you need to descend. Ugh. Captain Paul Phillips would obey the order and begin to descend and was said to wait about 23 seconds before informing air traffic control or sky guide that they were in a TCAS descent. I read in an article that this is a rather long delay for you to be going from going into TCAS descent and then letting air traffic control know. It was, I guess, something that should have been very immediate. Yeah. But it was said that maybe the first officer's bathroom break kind of led to him not being able to reach the radio and let them know it was said that captain paul phillips really just wanted to like reach the descent level before he called into tcas so he was just a little busy with that okay 
but it ultimately wouldn't really matter because I think this is around the time that Peter's dealing with the other flight, flight 1135, trying to get them into Fringer airport. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he wouldn't have really heard it, even if I think they would have made it at that time. Meanwhile, the Russian aircraft flight 2937 was cruising at the same altitude, 36,000 feet, of Lake Constance when their TCAS system goes off and it begins warning them of traffic in the area. As their TCAS system is going off, telling them that there's traffic in the area, they would be told by air traffic controller Peter Nielsen to descend. This at first confused the pilots and it was said that they could hear them kind of debating with one another and looking out to see if they could see sight of this traffic that was said to be in the area. But it was also said to be very dark that night. I believe it was a waning moon and it was said to be below where the airplanes were flying. So they could barely see like 10 kilometers out in front of them. Mm. I didn't put that into feet, but you know how out of country cases are. But it, it like they couldn't really see out in front of them. It was pitch black. But at the end of their argument, they would decide to go ahead and follow the overall command and descend. It was while they were descending that the TCAS system of the Russian plane, Flight 2937, would tell it to do something entirely different. It Mm. wanted the plane to climb. There were a lot of pilots or, um, I guess, like cabin workers within. There was like an off-duty first pilot. There was some kind of training going on, so there were just a lot of people in the cabin. Off-duty officer Murat, Ekahotovich would acknowledge that the TCAS system was telling it to climb, but the pilot in command, Oleg Irakovich, would state that, you know, we really need to listen to air traffic control instead. He's guiding us down. He's telling us we need to go down. We should just go ahead and go down. This would ensue another debate that was going on. And flight navigator Sergei Genod. I'm so sorry, you guys. I don't mean to insult y'all. <laughs> Sergey. <laughs> Whoever you are, your name. But he, when the argument broke out within the cockpit, he would not descend anymore. He would just kind of like stop what he was doing. He was like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. just going to like let this go and see what happens. Now, while all of this is going on, Peter is completely unaware that the TCAS system is telling these planes basically to do anything. I think Peter is really flustered and confused at this point. I did read that they, all of them were on the same radio channel. So technically you should have been able to hear the TCAS going in the background, telling them the different commands, but it was really said that it was like really bad timing on everyone's part. When people were trying to talk, they would try like accidentally talk at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so nothing was really being heard correctly. It was just all around chaos. Ugh. And it's so crazy to like think about all of this is happening just within like minutes and seconds. Seconds, seconds, really. It's like Peter is seeing the traffic on his screen and he's having seconds to figure out his next move. And so he gets on the radio with flight 2937 and he yells at them, you know, you need to descend. Your traffic is at the two o'clock position. I need you to descend now. Hearing this, it gave the pilots the confidence that they needed to go ahead and ignore the TCAS system that was telling them to climb and instead listen to Peter and descend, unknowingly heading straight towards the Boeing aircraft. Mm. 
Moments later, you would hear the men asking, where's the traffic? Where's the traffic? And you would actually hear one of them state in horror that it's right over there. It's not two o'clock. It's at your 10. All the while, the TCAS system is repeatedly blaring at the pilots to climb. But at this point, it was too late. Neither of the pilots had time to move out of each other's way, and the planes would crash. It was said that if both flights had followed the automated instructions, the collision would have never happened. It was also said that the phone malfunction that was going on that was not allowing Peter to talk to the F airport over in Germany was also not allowing a call from an adjacent control tower to come in that was over in Karlsruhe, which if they would have been able to call and have Peter answer, would have been able to warn him of the oncoming collision that they were seeing on their screens and were trying to stop, Uh. but couldn't because it wasn't their area. I guess they didn't have like the radio frequency. Oh my God. It was also discovered that Peter did not give the command two minutes beforehand, but instead 43 seconds (gasps) before the collision occurred. So it was not enough time for the pilots to correct themselves. Oh my God. Peter. The night that Peter gave the command, he was doing what was said to be the job of three people, supervisor, upper sector controller, and approach controller. After the damning evidence was brought forward on the crash, Skyguide accepted full responsibility and begged for the forgiveness and mercy of the families. Oh my god. On May 19th of 2004, the official cause of the crash would be deemed managerial incompetence and system <laughs> failures. Sorry. I, I, like, I've been biting my tongue this whole time on Peter because, like, I would feel so bad if I were him, you know? But also, it's like, a lot of red flags were popping up. Like, at any point, <sighs> did you think about waking up your coworker? Like, so, it was said that, I guess, because of maintenance, he did have two people on call that he technically could have called. But I don't think that Peter knew that he could call them, it was described. Or, like, knew that he needed to. And also, by the time that he realized that he needed help, he couldn't waste any time calling someone he needed to try and, like, stay in contact with these flight. And uh, could he have even called them with no phone? Phone? It Yeah. It's like, it very much, you know, there was some things on Peter's side that could have been held differently, but it was very much a series of just, like, unfortunate events that if things were working the way they should have it would have ended up a lot differently if there wasn't maintenance work being done if his phone was working if you know he had if his partner wasn't taking a nap like he wasn't supposed to it's just like there are a lot of things that come into play that like it is just the wrong place wrong time and it's you do have to put someone responsible because that is 71 lives that were lost and it's very it's like, I, you do want to blame Peter, but at the end of the day, like, management was the one that was allowing right. these circumstances like, to happen. Overall, it's Skyguide. Yeah. Eight employees from Skyguide would be prosecuted under manslaughter charges on August 7th of 2006. A lot of them were managers uh, that were working, some of them not even working that night, but wow. had manager positions. In September of 2007, three of the four managers of the eight that were initially charged. So four of the managers would be found guilty 
out of the four, three of them would be given suspended prison terms while the fourth was made to pay a fine. And I'm not sure when this happens, but at some point, Peter is eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. So mm-hmm. he's not held at fault for what happened overall. On July 27th of 2006, a court in Constance ordered the Federal Republic of Germany to pay compensation to Bashakiran Airlines as the court found it illegal for the state to allow a foreign private company to allow air traffic control in German airspace, which I thought was really weird, too. Yeah. Uh, The government did appeal it. Uh, It was pending as of 2008. I know that's a really long time from now, but I just, you know, I, I forgot to google that so if you really want to know you can google it but i yeah that's fucking weird why is switzerland in charge of germany's airspace after peter found out that he was going to be criminally investigated into the crash he was said to have a nervous breakdown to the point where he actually needed to be hospitalized Mm -hmm. he would take months off from treatment and would ultimately retire as an air traffic controller he would not go back to work as an air traffic controller He would continue to work for Skyguide, but he would work at a desk job for the company. Mm. How could you return after that? You can't. He he dealt a lot with blame. He blamed very much blamed himself for, and it would be really hard for you not to like. He would state multiple times, like as a father, I sense that this loss leaves a gap that will hurt. Which yeah, it's hard to come back from that emotionally. His co-workers would leave a white rose at his former workplace in remembrance of the victims and in order for the workers to remember their responsibility to the public. Mm. Though the company found no drugs in his system and, like I had mentioned, he would be cleared by of any negligence of the event, Peter would be labeled a mass murderer by the public. And because of this, for his safety, his identity was set to never be released to the public. So that Peter, is, his, that's not his real name. That is. Oh. Until one more tragic twist happens and where his identity is revealed and the Uberling disaster comes to a horrific end. Because I'm not done. Oh, fuck. I'm not just talking about a plane crash. Oh, fuck. And this is why it's a case like I've never quite done before. What no one could have guessed was that there was a man out for revenge. Oh, just two years prior to the crash, 48-year-old Vitaly Kaliev was a Russian engineer who had been responsible for creating hundreds of homes throughout Russia, including one of his own. His hard work and dedication made him a very sought-after architect within the area, so when a Russian millionaire asked Vitaly to build his own mansion for him in Spain, Vitaly would say yes and embark on the two-year trip. Oh. The project was said to be rather hard on Vitaly emotionally. He was leaving behind his wife, 44-year-old Svetlana, and their two children behind, 10-year-old son Constantine and 4-year-old daughter Diana. But they would keep in touch with each other nearly every day, and the family was so excited at the thought of meeting once again. And by the time his contract had finally ended at the end of the two years in 2002, Vitaly had the perfect way for him to celebrate this with his family on a month-long trip to Spain. He wanted his family to experience the beauty that beholds in Spain and to see the ocean for the first time ever. He knew that Svetlana would love the botanical gardens in Blains while his son would be so excited to see the museums. 
though it was said that his daughter, Diana, his princess, as he called her, was just excited to see him. Mm. It was said that she would spend hours on the phone with him every day, and that when she ran out of things to talk about with him, she would simply sing to him. Oh. I don't don't like where this is going. Unfortunately for the Kaloyev family, these events would never come to fruition. Svetlana would get a call stating that some seats had suddenly become available for a last-minute flight to Barcelona. Flight 2937. Mm. When Vitaly first found out about the crash, he was said to rush to the scene and was actually one of the first relatives to arrive. As soon as he arrived on scene, he began a frenzied search for his family, even though it was very much so advised by police not to do so. Eventually, he would go through photographs of the victims that had been found so far, and that is when he would notice a photo of a girl in a pink dress, his little princess, Diana. The four-year-old barely had any visible injuries on her, as the 36,000-foot fall had been broken by trees in the surrounding area. Vitaly would describe that the trees had basically saved his fallen angel as she was flying out of, as she was falling out of the plane. Oh my gosh. He would go to the scene of the crash site where her body was found and find remnants of a pearl necklace that he had gotten her just the year prior. Mm. And he would collect what pearls he could find and state that he would keep them with him forever. (sighs) The mangled corpse of his son would be found just hours later, thrown onto the tarmac in front of a bus shelter. Seeing his body in the morgue, Vitaly was said to begin beating his head against the wall until he bled. And this actually caused police to be called over because they very much feared that he would commit suicide right then and there. Wow. In an online eulogy that he later wrote, he stated, He would have become a very good, well-educated person, useful to society. Were it not for this tragedy, which I cannot get over, I have no strength. His wife and the mother of his children, 44-year-old Svetlana, wouldn't be found until three days later when her body was discovered in a field of maize, barely recognizable. (sighs) After the deaths of his family, Vitaly quit his job. He, or was said to stop working. He refused to shave and he would only wear black from then on out. He would often sleep in the couch downstairs as he found it harder to go into the second and third floors where the families lived as he said they haunted the house that he lived in. Mm. When he finally did have the strength to go up there, he would turn the family home into a shrine dedicated to his wife and children. He would cover the children's beds with dolls and a schoolboy's chessboard while his wife's bed he adorned with boxes of her favorite scents and treats. Mm. Everywhere throughout the house contained photos of the family before the tragedy, and what was left of Vitaly's life savings he would use to pay for an elaborate tombstone that would display portraits of the family, which oh. I did. I sent you photos of. And I do not describe this tombstone well enough. Like, you will have to look at the photo of it. It is, it, I don't want to know how much it costs. It is so much detail in that tombstone, and it's huge. Skyguide would attempt to give Vitaly around 160,000 Swiss francs in order to not pursue the company criminally, which Vitaly would ignore. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the tombstone, the picture on the back of it, too. It's insane. Holy it's insane. fuck. I've, yeah, I don't want to know how much that cost. Vitaly, at first, I did not get the manager, like the CEO of Skyguide's name. I really should have 
case file says it. Um, but he was really pissed off at the CEO. He was blaming him for the crash and uh, wanted like a personal apology or some of the sorts from him. And the CEO was just really being a dick and not wanting to give Vitaly the apology. And when this occurred, Vitaly really tor- decided to take his aggressions out on the next person that he could find. And that just so happened to be the air traffic controller that was working that night, Peter Nielsen. Oh, shit. About 18 months after the crash, Vitaly Kalayev would hire a Russian detective to track down the anonymous air traffic controller that had been working for Skyguide that night. Vitaly had told the private detective that he was doing this because he was going to get the photos and the identity of this air traffic controller and release it to the public in order to re-spark interest in this case because in uh, Vitaly's mind, it had already lost interest and everyone was starting to forget about it. Mm -hmm. When the private detective finally found Peter Nielsen and brought Vitaly the photos as well as the address to where he lived, instead of taking this information to the media... Vitaly would book a hotel right next to the Zurich International Airport and decide to pay a visit to Peter Nelson himself. Fuck. On the evening of February 24th, 2004, still dressed in black and clutching photos of his family within his hands, Vitaly would sit outside Peter's house in the front garden and patiently wait. Peter would actually notice Vitaly sitting in his garden through his window and mention to his wife, Meta, that, oh, there's a man outside. I guess, like, I'm going to go see what's going on. It's not like stranger danger isn't as big of a thing. Like, Mm -hmm. we're still very neighborly and whatnot. And so Peter would walk outside. Uh, He had, they had three children together. Meta had, I believe, it was like a 13-year-old from a previous relationship. And then they had two small children together. I believe one was two and the other was four. And so Meta was taking care of one of the children that had followed Peter to the door. And Peter didn't let her out. So she started crying. So Meta was taking care of the baby. And all of a sudden, she can hear the men's voices start to raise. Her ears perk up and she's trying to hear what they're saying when all of a sudden she hears the stranger yell, I am Russia, followed by Peter screaming and then stating, please don't kill me. As soon as Meta heard this, she would rush outside, but by then it was too late and she would find Peter bleeding on the terrace. The rugged man was standing not that far away, holding a long knife next to him. But thankfully, he would simply turn and run away while Peter would ultimately bleed out and die in his wife's arms. Shit. Peter's wife and neighbors would give a description of the man that they had seen in the area before Peter's death. Uh, I believe, I'm not sure if it was kind of like an apartment complex or whatnot, but it was said that Peter's neighbor may have potentially been the one to like let him in or Pete. He had knocked on the neighbor's door asking, oh, where's this man? Do you know where Peter lives? And the neighbor mm. pointed like, oh, they're right over there. So he had been seen kind of wandering around the area by multiple people. And thankfully, they were able to give somewhat of a good description of what happened. A knife would be found tossed aside in nearby the apartment. And this the tests that were done on the knife would conclude that it was Peter's blood that was on the blade of the knife. And there would 
they would also find fingerprints, though they weren't identifiable at the time that they first found them. As soon as Peter died, the identity of the air traffic controller of the Uberlin cr crash of 2002 would finally be revealed, and now he would be revealed as a victim of murder as well. Mm. Swiss border police were put on high alert as the news of a man with a Russian accent was now their main suspect in the murder. Police really tried to hide the fact that this was probably an act of revenge for yeah. the crash, but media were super quick to connect the dots mm -hmm. and put it together themselves. At first, a lot of the public blame would be shifted on Alexander Selkor, who had a wife and two children also die in the crash. And it, like, a lot of the people who whose children were on this plane had, like, worked for the government or worked for somewhere within UFA. And so I was reading in one of the articles they found going to work that day, turning on the radio, that's how they found out. And a lot of those people lost, if not one, two children. So a lot of their, like, whole families were wiped out. Yeah, oh my god. Because of this event. Alexander, hearing that he was a suspect for the murder of Peter Nielsen, had to go on to TV and publicly condemn the killing and give evidence that he was nowhere near Switzerland at this time, so there was no way that he could have committed this murder. And when they crossed that name off their list, that is when police kind of set their sights on the victims outside of the school. And that's when they noticed that another man just so happened to also lose his wife and two children that was outside of the Ufa school community mm -hmm. that was on that plane. They discovered that this man's name was Vitaly Kaliev, and his description when they looked him up just so happened to match that of the alleged killer that was seen walking around Peter's apartment complex. Mm. They were also able to find that Vitaly had obtained a tourist visa to Switzerland just a week before the murders and had records confirming that he flew into the country on February 21st and had yet to return to Russia so that he was still in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Police would find Vitaly asleep in his hotel bed and he would immediately be placed under arrest for the murder of Peter Nielsen. Vitaly at first would deny that he had killed Peter, but once the substantial evidence was brought against him, including solution that was done on Vitaly's hands that tested positive for blood, as well as Vitaly admitting that he had purchased a weapon that the police had found. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he was finally like, okay, you got me. I went to go confront Peter outside of his home, but I just wanted to talk to him and I just, I really don't remember what happened afterwards. One of the things that he would quote to the police was, I have been living in the cemetery for om almost two years, sitting behind their graves. I cannot live anymore. I simply exist. Oh. During the trial, Vitaly agreed that the evidence given pointed to the fact that he probably had, in his words, killed Mr. Nielsen, but insisted yet again that he did not remember killing him. According to Vitaly, the photographs that he had while he was arguing with Peter had somehow fallen onto the ground. And when this happened in Vitaly's mind, it was like his family was being thrown around in their coffins as they fell to the floor. And rage would overcome Vitaly and he would just see red from there and just blacked out mm. and doesn't remember anything that happened after that. 
He would state in court, I went to see Nielsen as a father who loves his children so he could see the photos of my dead children and next to them, his kids who were still alive. Throughout the two-day trial, Vitaly would stare at photographs of his wife, 10-year-old son, and 4-year-old daughter and would state multiple times that he felt pity for for Peter's three children who were now living without their father. Defense attorneys would state that Vitaly went into an emotional blackout when he stabbed Peter Nielsen and should therefore receive a lesser sentence. I think they were trying to shoot for around three years, but the judges would ultimately end up dismissing the plea. According to state prosecutors, Vitaly had began to plan the murder a year after the tragedy uh, as soon as he went to a memorial service up in Uberlingen and Sky Guide accepted, I guess, partial responsibility for the crash. And that just really set Vitaly off. And so from there, he spent months planning and plotting the murder of Peter Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Vitaly would be found guilty of premeditated killing, which under Swiss law ranks between murder and manslaughter. The maximum sentence for this is 20 years, but Vitaly would be sentenced to eight, which he was given 600 days in jail already spent. But in 2007, just three years into his sentence, he would be released early. Okay. This was done under the guise that his mental trauma had not been properly taken into account. Uh, According to what I heard on Case File, the Swiss doctor would ask Vitaly to play a game of chess. And once Vitaly won 12 times in a row, the doctor's like, oh, he's stable. That means he's super smart and he he can sit for trial. Even though I don't think he spoke like the entire time he was there. So it's, it's one way to do it. Maybe go back to school. Like, yeah. Hmm. They have assessment forms on Google you can use. They didn't have Google back then, but yeah. Yeah, they did. 2002? Yeah. Google's been around for like... 2004, 7, yeah. 1990s. Okay, you know what? Sorry. (laughs) Like, they had cell phones. (laughs) But not very good. You had to pay $50 to open it for one second. (laughs) So once Vitaly was released early and returned back to Russia, I don't really agree with this, okay? But the town viewed him as somewhat of a hero. Oh. Do take into account this majority of this town lost someone that they knew in the crash. Um, But the authorities of North Ossetia even ended up appointing him as Deputy Minister of Architecture and Construction after he got back. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> I just any like of that. Hmm, interesting. I'm like, so, you killed someone, but good for you. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's one bad does not justify another. You know? Yeah. Swiss government dem- demanded that Vitaly actually pay the 150,000 Swiss francs back for, like, I guess the cost that it put to have him in jail was 150,000 Swiss francs and Switzerland was like oh you need to pay us back that money that it costs to keep you in jail and Vitaly laughed and was like one I don't have that two even if I had that money it would be better spent at an orphanage or anywhere but Switzerland yeah all right that's a lot 
Vitaly Kaliev would actually be detained by police at the Munich airport in Germany while he was trying to attend the 10th anniversary memorial service for the crash that killed his wife and children. The people at the Munich airport said that his visa was on a watch list in Switzerland and that the delegation basically objected his presence there and he wasn't allowed. Oh, fuck. But he got Russian diplomats to bail him out. Uh, They were like, no, he's going to go and I will take him with me if that's like what it takes. Yeah. He did end up going. Okay. This event would even be the inspiration for a movie titled Aftermath in which actor Arnold Schwarzenegger would play a traumatized husband slash father out for revenge after his family dies in a crash. Hmm. There is also a Russian film made in 2018 titled Unforgiven that is also based off the case, as well as like National Geographic has like a Mayday, an episode titled Mayday that talks about the crash, just the crash, I believe, um, and some other places too. You can Google them. And in 2013, Vitaly actually found himself in love again. He would marry an engineer named Irina Desarosova. Said to be 22 years his junior. Oh, what? <laughs> and 16 years after the death of his family, Vitaly's family would become whole again as his wife gave birth to a pair of twins, hmm. a boy and a girl that were born in 2016. The 62-year-old father said of his newborn children, life has turned out to be so that I can have children once more. And I have meaning in my life again. So that's good. Mm. Glad that there's meaning. Mm. He at first did not express any regret for the murder of Peter. He would state life is more complicated than law. I only speak for myself. I had exhausted all legal ways to find justice. I believe any person in such a situation gets the right to be the law and perform justice. But in the end, Vitaly Kaliev would say that killing Peter Nilsson did not make him feel any better. Right. Yeah. Because you shouldn't do that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not I supposed un- to, I don't think. You I know? do understand that you went through a very traumatic situation, and I'm not invalidating any of that, but that does not give you a right to kill. Because now think of fucking Peter's children, three kids that are yeah. without a father. And like... And- Even though you're out of jail and you have a new family, you're still a murderer and your kids have a father who killed someone. You're, it's just like, I, like, murder is a heavy thing and you're going to carry that for life. So it's just, it's not something that should be taken so easily. You know, one bad doesn't give justice to commit another bad, but. Yeah, it's not necessarily eye for eye over here. But it's also really hard when you have a justice system that is imperfect and lets things slide because i mean at the end of the day like i sky guide wasn't held accountable i mean some people got suspended jail sentences and one manager paid a fine but i don't think that the people of sky guide necessarily like you you probably should have gotten bigger in bigger trouble than that yeah Uh, they they did um, end up not Oh, sorry. Maybe you're about to say what I was Well, they did, um, uh, they did end up going bankrupt from oh, what I Oh, because I was going to so. say, like, did they pay out settlements? I think you mentioned it earlier, <clears throat> and I assume they would have been pretty large settlements. No. So that 
uh, Vitaly's. I don't know why his was so large, but from what I saw, they were offering like 30 to 60,000 francs per child or like per victim. So it really wasn't that, that's not a lot. Like, that's what, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's weird. And they mm-hmm. were trying to take out these settlements because, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's all around a messed up case. There's no happy ending with this one. It, and it's, it's, uh, I want to feel bad for everyone, but it, it's just, it's a really weird feelings involved in this. Yeah, you took me for a ride. Yeah, I can definitely, um, not, there aren't very, very many cases like this. I mean, there probably are, but... Thank you, TikTok, for that flight simulation popped up. And I was like, damn. And then I went into the comments and it was like the air traffic controller got killed. And I was like, what? And I looked it up and I was like, damn. Yeah, they really, you know, just did that. And it's you see it in movies all the time. But like movie and real life, Mm. different things. Yeah. Sometimes you got to, I don't know, be the bigger person. Then sometimes it's hard. Damn. Yeah, that was um, wild, and I didn't expect the twist, even though you told me that there was going to be one. Um, I, I kind of feel, like, dumbfounded and speechless just because of how tragic it, it was. The plane crashed oh. by itself alone, you know? was a case, yeah. And it's... so it's just very tragic. Yeah. Thank you, Case File, for doing such an excellent job and really putting this case together for me. Definitely check out their two-part series. They do an amazing job. Uh. And I think with that being said, it's time to go do something happy with your day. So go sit in the sunshine, go drink a glass of wine, or, you know, go just Go get do that flat tire fixed. Yeah, go pick up your child from daycare. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Well, if you have a case you want to hear, you can always leave your name if you want us to say it as well as the case you want to hear yeah hit us up at red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com and check out our socials for photos on this case as well as any updates that we have so you yeah. know when we post the photos you know or the episodes <laughs> r-a-r-w podcast sprite return your green bottles back please taste different with a clear i don't like it